Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Hallelujah. We want to continue uh, along the lines of uh, teaching how to be led by the Spirit of God this morning, and we are using several scriptures as uh, beginning points or text scriptures. One is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, and then also we're using some text scriptures in Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn there. And the Bible talks about, I really had this on my heart uh, for, for some time, and it's interesting how the, how the Lord uh, drew me to this subject, or back to this subject. We've taught it before, certainly, but... Um, one of the things that Paul said is uh, going to be the condition of the church is that many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Well, the conscience, your conscience is the voice of your spirit. And so he's talking about, uh, he makes mention of the fact that the church, much of the church, some of the church anyway, we don't know exactly how much, but some of the church anyway will depart from sound teaching, sound doctrine. They'll be looking for people to say what they want to hear. They'll be looking to, to take doctrines that are contrary to the word of God or ideas or philosophies or whatever, they, whatever the case is because they're not in a position to listen to the voice of their spirit. Well, if that's the case, then how much more important is it in these last days to be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Ghost within us than ever before? So we're talking about the, the makeup of man. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul says, by the Holy Ghost, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells us the makeup of man, spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, soul, and body. Man is a spirit. He has a soul and he lives in a body. Now, Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Well, everybody wants to be led by the Spirit of God. Everybody that believes there is a Spirit of God. Everybody wants to be led by the Spirit of God. But how is that going to happen? Verse 16 tells us, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Now notice if man is three parts, spirit, soul, and body, and the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and 16 that the Holy Ghost will lead us by bearing witness with our spirits. He doesn't say, and nowhere else in the Bible does it say that the Spirit of God will bear witness with our bodies. It never says in Scripture that the Holy Ghost will bear witness with our souls. It says that the Holy Ghost will bear witness with our spirits. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 is another golden text scripture that we've used. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Now they use candles in those days the way we'd use electric light bulbs or lamps or something like that to light a room. The spirit of, the, uh, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. In other words, just as they used in their day candles or little oil lamps literally, to, to guide their way in the dark or to turn the light on something that they could not see. In the same way, revelation and direction comes from God through our spirits. Again, not through our souls and not through our bodies. One of the things that's, uh, that's interesting to me is how many Christians pray uh, something along the lines of, well, God, if you want me to do this, then open this door. Or if you don't want me to do that, close that door. Well, that's looking for God to bear witness with your bodies through natural circumstances. You don't hear too much about it nowadays, but in times past, people used to talk about putting out fleeces. 
And, you know, people go back to Gideon in the Old Testament and say, well, Gideon put out a fleece and God led him. Yeah, he was spiritually dead too. These men in the Old Testament weren't born again. There was no way for them to have guidance from their spirits because their spirits weren't alive unto God. But that's not the case with you, is it? Well, where should we get direction from God? Through natural circumstances? Through the natural realm? Well, the Holy Ghost says in the, in the Scripture, it says the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirits. The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Now turn with me over to um, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 because it's pretty easy to distinguish between your body and your inward man. Paul talks about the spirit as being the heart. He talks about him as being the inward man. Um, Peter calls him the hidden man of the heart. There are different terminologies and different phrases that are used relative to to the, the spirit. But basically, we know the difference between the inward man and the outward man. We know the difference between the man on the inside and the man on the outside. We know the difference between our flesh and that inward man. But most of the church world is, is uh, ignorant, woefully ignorant in many cases, of who that inward man is. For example, in Hebrews chapter 4, much of the, um, uh, much of the church world thinks that the soul and the spirit are the same. But if the soul and the spirit were the same, why did Paul identify both spirit, soul, and body? Why didn't he just say spirit and body or soul and body? Most of the church world takes those terms to be interchangeable terms. But Paul disproves that by the Holy Ghost, assuming he's the author of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, For the word of God is quick and powerful. Weymouth's translation says, full of life and power. And is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Well, if the soul and the spirit were the same thing, you couldn't divide them, could you? So the soul and the spirit have to be different. They have to be separate. Well, what are they? If we can distinguish the difference between soul and spirit, we can get a mighty, mighty, mighty big head start on spiritual development and understanding how spiritual things operate. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. Slow down. Most of those requests come after church, not during church. James chapter 1, I want you to notice that Paul is writing to the church, or I'm sorry, James is writing to the church. Let's start in, uh, verse 21 is what I want to get to, but verse 18 is where I want to start. Paul says, uh, I'm sorry, James says, of his own will, talking about God, begat us with the word of truth. Now, the begat means to be born of. So he's talking about being born again. And we know in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the Bible says, for if any man be in Christ, meaning born again, he's a new creature or a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things become new. We know that's not true of the outer man. When we get born again, we don't change eye color or hair color. Or if we don't have hair, get hair back. Or if we're old, become young again because we get born again. Wouldn't it be nice if some of those things happened? But that's not what changes. What changes? Things on the inside. The Bible says that God takes away the stony heart of the spiritually dead heart or spirit out of man and puts a new spirit inside of him. He's a new creation. He's not just a renovated old creation. He's a new creature, a new creation. So here where he's talking about of his own will, God of his own will uh, begat us or caused us to be born again by the word of truth. Same thing Peter is saying, 1 Peter 1, 23. 
He said, we were born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God. So he's got to be talking to Christians here, right? He's talking to people that have been born again by the word of God. So of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, they wouldn't call sinners beloved brethren, would he? He's got to be talking to people that are saved. That's going to be important with something else he tells them in a couple of verses. He says, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. Most Christians I know of practice this verse backwards. They're quick to speak, quick to wrath, and slow to hear. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. I found that the less I say, the less I have to repent of. Sad but true. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So he's talking to Christians. The context that I want you to get is that he's talking to believers, people that have been born again. And notice what he says to them in verse 21. Wherefore, let us lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That's got to be one of the worst translations into the English language that there ever has been. Let's just summarize that by saying let's put aside the things of the world and the things of the flesh. And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now, one of the most interesting things to me, one of the most surprising things that I ever found out about uh, spiritual growth and spiritual development is that the Christian soul is not automatically saved. Now, one of the problems we have in, in Christendom, in the church world, is that we use words, uh, words and phrases that are indistinct. We've got our own language. We've got our own lingo about the way we say things. And a lot of times, the way the church says things is not the way the Bible says them. We talk about people coming to the altar and, and their souls being saved. If four people come to the altar, then we might describe it as saying, four souls got saved last night. Well, according to James, they didn't. Now, what we mean is four people came and got born again. But we don't use that terminology very often. We say it our way instead of the way that the Bible says it. I've always been a stickler for saying things the way the Bible says it. I learned that from Brother Hagin. I'd hear other people talking about things and saying things all different kinds of ways, but Brother Hagin would always say it exactly the way the Word says. I learned to appreciate that. I've had people throughout the years, pastoring people, come up and say, Pastor Mike, I want you to listen to this and see if I'm right. And they'd come up with their own way of saying something, and I always say, well, okay, you might be right, but why don't you just say it the way the Bible says it? I found that that just carries more weight spiritually. So James is saying by the Holy Ghost, here's the Holy Ghost impressing or inspiring James to write, to say and let them know that these Christians' souls were not saved. Their spirits have been recreated. Their spirits have been made new. But their souls aren't saved. Now he goes on to say in verse 21, or verse 22 rather, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. We've got a lot of self-deceived Christians. Because they're hearers of the word but not doers. And notice you can be a hearer and not a doer. There's a big difference between hearing the word and receiving or doing the word of God. Hearing's not the key. It is a key, but it's not the only key. Because you can be a hearer and still be self-deceived. Well, how many Christians do you know of? How many people in the church world do you know of 
whose souls have not been saved and they're deceived into thinking that they're doing all right. Now, what is it about the soul that God seems to leave up to us to take care of? Why is it that God leaves one of the, the, the three major parts, the three major makeup or parts of man that makes up man, leaves it up to us to do something about? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul says the same thing, but he uses different terminology. Paul says, beginning in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Notice he's not commanding it. Notice he's not telling us do this or else. He's beseeching us by the mercies of God. Because God's been so good to us, here's what our responsibility should be. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most other translations translate that last phrase, reasonable service, as spiritual worship. Remember over in John chapter 4 where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well of Samaria and her question is, where do we worship God? In this mountain or where the Jews say? And Jesus said, the hour has come and now is when they that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. Well, a lot of times we talk about spiritual worship as singing and, and, and maybe ministering to God in other tongues. And that's a great thing to do. It brings great blessing to you. But that's not spiritual worship that Jesus is talking about. The spiritual worship that God expects and, and requires of us is to present our bodies a living sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I found it a lot easier just to sing in tongues than it is to present my body a living sacrifice. And those, and charismatics particularly, would rather sing in tongues than put the work and the effort into presenting their bodies a living sacrifice. But you can't substitute that one for the other. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. And be not conformed. Notice in verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. Well, now, aren't these people born again? Haven't their spirits been made new? Yet he's telling Christians, people that are born again, new creatures in Christ Jesus, not to be conformed to the world. Which means we can be. Which means we can be. I would submit to you. That most Christians are, at least in my experience. But he said, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. This word transformed is literally to mean, literally means metamorphosized. The change that occurs when a caterpillar crawls into a cocoon and comes out a butterfly. That's what it's talking about. That's the kind of change or transformation he's referring to. That's the word picture that he uses from the Greek words that he chooses he said and be, but be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind transformed by the renewing of your mind now notice something about this he says man is three parts spirit soul and body he is the spirit he has a soul and he lives in a body two of the three parts of man are still left up to man to deal with the body and the soul or in this case he calls it the mind for the sake of definition, and we'll prove it to you as we go, the soul is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. The mind, the will, and the emotions. So God leaves it up to you to do something about your body. He leaves it up to you to do, after you've been born again, after you've been made a new creature in Christ Jesus, old things have passed away and all things become new. 
He leaves it up to you to do something with your body. He leaves it up to you to do something with your mind. He leaves it up to you to do something with your will. And he leaves it up to you to do something with your emotions. Now, what does it mean to have your mind renewed? Notice he goes on to tell you what the benefit is. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove. The word prove means to determine by experience. To determine by experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, folks, you know as well as I do, God doesn't have three wills. He doesn't have a good will and then one step up an acceptable will and one step up a perfect will. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. But you also know as well as I do that we've gone through life at different stages, different time periods in our life, kind of weaving in and out of the will of God. We might be walking in the will of God in, in, uh, in its full measure in one area of life and in another area we're just kind of flirting around the edges. So it's obvious that God does have a permissive will. Anything outside of his perfect will, the main line, which is good, acceptable, and perfect, would be his permissive will. And he doesn't hold it against us. He may see that we're trying. There may just be things that we don't yet know. But disobedience based on ignorance is still disobedience. Failure to walk in the blessings of God because of, dis- because of ignorance is still failure to walk in the blessings of God. Doesn't mean we've got a wrong attitude. Doesn't mean we hate God. It just means we're not walking in his perfect will. Well, what makes the difference? What makes the difference? Now, notice nowhere in the Bible, never in the Bible can you find a place where God says, now you're going to have to work on your spirit. But you'll find a lot of places in the scripture where it says you've been made perfect or complete in him spiritually. That's got to be spiritually. It can't be any other thing. We're still subject to sin in the flesh and in the soul. So he's got to be talking about made perfect or made complete spiritually. Your spirits have been made perfect. So what would necessarily then be the key to spiritual development? The development of the soul. Specifically the renewing of the mind. Now you know as well as I do. That we all struggle with temptation and sin. Can I ask you a question? I want you to just be real honest with yourself. I'm not asking for a show of hands for goodness sake. But I want you to be honest with yourself when I, and, and consider this when I ask you this question. How many of you have ever been forced to sin against your will? That doesn't happen, does it? I mean, if we're really honest about it, we've never committed any sin that we didn't choose to commit. So where's the struggle? Paul talks about his own struggle in Romans chapter 7. He talks about not being able to, at least in his opinion, it seemed to him that he was unable to control what his body wanted to do. He said, from the inside, I'm delighting in the law of God after the inward man. My spirit always wants to do the right thing. But I see another law working in my body, drawing me into sin, bringing me to the place where I'm doing things that I don't want to do and not doing things that I, the man on the inside, wants to do. He comes to the conclusion, I don't have any power over this. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? Well, his answer is Jesus. He found that the answer was in Jesus. He then tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 that there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But where is his struggle? 
Where is this struggle? Folks, the struggle is always for the will. It's always for the will. Always. Because no matter how much the devil tempts you, no matter how much your flesh may want to do the wrong thing or refuse to do the right thing, it still comes down to your will in every case. In the most extreme cases of addiction, it still comes down to the will. Nobody can force you to take something you don't want to take. And nobody can keep you from taking something you decide you're going to take. It all comes down to the will. So what does the devil do? The devil uses every tool in his, in his arsenal to influence our will. The struggle against sin, the struggle against the enemy, the struggle against wrong is a struggle for the will because the spirit doesn't have a vote. It, there's no decision making or will determining factor to the spirit. That's not the way God made us. The same thing's true of the body. The body can't decide. Now, both the spirit and the body can influence the soul. But it still comes down to the decision. The decision maker, the determining factor is the soul. That's where the will of man is. So all the time that Paul's spirit was trying to influence him to do the right thing in Romans chapter 7. Or as his experience is described in Romans chapter 7. His spirit's trying to influence him to do the right thing but his body's trying to influence him to do the wrong thing where is it that paul lacks strength in his soul see so much of the christian world thinks that oh we need to pray for more spiritual strength you couldn't handle any more spiritual strength because the bible says you've got the fullness of jesus only inside of you there isn't anything more well then why don't we operate in that spiritual strength pastor mike because of the soul because we haven't done the work of the soul that we need to. That's the thing that Paul made the difference in or uh, made a discovery. The discoveries that he made caused him to make the difference in his life that brought him out of defeat into victory. Because at the time Paul is writing this, explaining to us in Romans chapter 7, this was my struggle. He tells us this is what I discovered and this is what brought me into victory. He found out that the strength was already in the inside of him all the time. All he had to do was walk in the spirit. Now, what does that mean? You know, as well as I do, the Bible says both Old Testament and New Testament, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, faith is of the heart, isn't it? Faith is a spiritual force. For with the heart, man believes under righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. Romans chapter 10 tells us. So faith is a spiritual force. It's a product of the heart or the spirit of man. So he says, The scripture instructs us or encourages us to walk by faith, walk from our spirits and not by sight. Now, what does it mean by sight? In other words, it's talking about don't be influenced by the things that you see. Don't be influenced by the natural circumstances. Don't be influenced by this natural realm. Now, how does the devil try to influence us through circumstance? He brings situations to us to affect our thoughts because he's trying to influence us in how to determine our will. He can't do it for us. He can't decide for us. One of the uh, most uh, interesting things spiritually that I heard as, uh, as a younger, younger man while I was in Bible school, I was working with Brother Hagen, and um, uh, 
we uh, held a meeting. Brother Hagen held a meeting in South Bend, Indiana, in Lester Summerall's church. And it was a, just a three-day, short, day, short three-day meeting. But while we were there, uh, I had an opportunity to meet somebody that, uh, that really was a total surprise. Lester Summerall had told the story, and I had heard him tell it when he was at Ramah um, some, well, maybe a year before, about how that in his ministry he went to the Philippines. I think it was in the 50s, early 50s he went to the Philippines. And um, um, he had been there for about two days, and all of a sudden he picked up the morning newspaper or whatever it was and splashed on the headlines, front page news, was this demon-possessed woman, the story about a demon-possessed woman that they had locked up in the jail in downtown Manila, the capital city of the Philippines. And he went, read the story about how this, this woman was, uh, was a marvel to everybody because she, would, she was able to um, perform supernatural feats of strength. You know, five or six policemen take a hold of her and she'd throw them off, like, shake them off like flies and, and, and that kind of thing. They couldn't understand what was going on. They tried to, to tie her down and she'd break most of the things they tied her down with. Finally got her locked up in a cell. But they would watch through the bars at this something they knew it was demon power but they didn't know how to identify it but there was something that would cause these physical manifestations on this woman there'd be bite marks that would appear on this woman they'd be watching and nobody she's in the cell by herself and all of a sudden she's screaming bite marks would appear on her flesh her skin would begin to bleed and different things like that we think we know something about demon power in this country bless our hearts Well, Lester was reading the story, and he just kind of said out loud to himself, why doesn't somebody cast the devil out of that woman? And the Lord said, that's what I brought you here for. He said, I didn't mean me. <laughs> so he had a little argument with the Lord. The Lord said, I want you to go down to the jail and tell him you're there to see this woman. You're going to deliver her by the power of God and set her free. Well, they won't let me in to see her. He argued. Well, after five or ten minutes of arguing, he finally got all of his arguments rebuffed by the Lord. So he said, all right, Lord, I'll do it. So he goes down to the jail and says, I'm here to see so-and-so. Called her name from the newspaper article that he had read. He said, are you family members? He said, no, I'm here to set her free. And he laughed. He said, I'm here to see her. Well, you can't see her. All of a sudden, there was this blood-curdling scream from the back of the jailhouse. Everybody goes running. Lester just goes with them. <laughs> See what's going on. One, another one of these manifestations is taking place. And, uh, and Lester says, let me in there with her and I'll set her free. And one of the guys with the keys said, she'll kill you just as sure as you're standing here. He said, she won't kill me. She won't lay a hand on me in the name of Jesus. <laughs> one of the other guys says, let him in. Let's see this. So they opened the door and let him in, locked the door behind him, slammed it behind him as quick as they could. He gets there and tells the woman, the Lord sent me here to set you free. She starts speaking out of the, you know, out of her innermost being. There's this voice, man's voice coming out, talking about what he can't do and all this stuff. Long story short, he set her free. Got her set free by the power of God. Well, this made big news. I mean, they just written the day before or that day a story in the newspaper about how she was uncontrollable and so forth the next day on the front page 
was a headline about Lester Summerall setting her free. This young man named Lester Summerall came and said, I've been sent by the Lord to set her free by the power of God. And he did. Well, this led the next day or soon thereafter to him being called in by the president of the Philippines. The president of the Philippines said, I can't tell you how grateful we are. Is there anything we can do? And he said, yeah, you can give me a church to preach in. So he did. That's how his ministry got started in the Philippines. But the thing that was interesting, I had heard that story. I'd heard him tell it. He went into great detail about the story, and, and a lot of the, the things were just spectacular in the description that he gave of it. But he said that um, uh, um, he said that he asked her afterwards. He said after she was in her right mind, you know the Bible says about the guy that was out in the tombs of Gadara, the madman of Gadara, when he was in his right mind, after Jesus set him free, when he was in his right mind. Well, after she was in her right mind, he asked her some questions. He said, is there ever anything that the devil did? Now, she was possessed, taken over spirit, soul, and body. And he asked her, he said, is there anything that this thing tried to make you do that you wouldn't do? She said, oh, yeah, all the time. He said, so that it came down to you choosing or refusing to do what he told you to do. She said, oh, yeah, he couldn't make me do what I didn't want to do or what I was unwilling to do. Now, I don't know why she was willing to do some of the stuff she did. But the important thing is, even when she was possessed, the devil didn't have control of her will in totality. Well, if the devil can't control the will of somebody that he's possessed, why is it that we would think that he could control our will or that our will is out of reach of ourselves? Now, I know some people say, oh, well, I just couldn't help myself. I know sometimes we feel that way, but that's never the truth. Never the truth. There's never been a thing, anything that you've done wrong or anything that you've ever done right that you haven't thought and decided to either do or not do. It comes down to the will of man. It comes down to the will of man. The devil is after your will. As born-again, spirit-filled Christians, he's still after our will. Now, turn with me to, to uh, Luke chapter 16. I want to show you a, a story relate a story to you or remind you of a story that Jesus told us about spiritual things and how they work. And I want you to see the condition of the man that Jesus talks about. I'm going to start reading in verse 19, Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain man. Now, Jesus tells you right off the bat, this cannot be a parable because you'd never use the word certain in a parable because a parable is one thing that stands for or represents something else. The fact that he says there's a certain man tells us that he's talking about a real life or maybe we should say an afterlife experience, real person, something that really happened to a real person. So he's not using some kind of illustration. He's not using an allegory. He's telling us this really happened so we can learn from it. There was a certain man, a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar, real guy, named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice they didn't stop living after they died physically. They didn't cease existing. 
See, man thinks of death from a natural standpoint. We think of the, uh, death as being the cessation of existence, and that's never the case. Death, for both the Christian and the, the saved and the unsaved, means a change of location. That's it. Nothing ends except our physical bodies and our time in our physical bodies. But the real you still continues to live on. You were made in the image of God. Every person was. Saved and unsaved, every person was made in the image of God. And God is an eternal spirit. Man is an eternal spirit who lives in a body for a period of time. So the rich man died and was carried, or the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Now notice something about this rich guy even after he dies. He's used to giving people orders and having people serve him. And now after he's, de- after he's dead, he's still looking for the same thing. But Abraham said, son, remember. So he must be able to remember. Remembering is a function of the mind, isn't it? Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him, or let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he, Abraham, said back to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now notice that Jesus is telling us what things are like at that point in time after the physical life was over. Now, things have changed a bit because there is no Abraham's bosom anymore. Abraham's bosom was just a, a holding place in the upper part of, of hell, literally, because man was not able to stand in the presence of God because Jesus had not yet been crucified and raised from the dead. The Bible says that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he led captivity captive. In other words, he went into Abraham's bosom, took all these people that were there and carried them into, with him into heaven. So there is no more paradise. There is no more Abraham's bosom. There is no more purgatory to pray somebody out of or some silly thing like that, which was started for the church to raise money, by the way, anyhow. Give enough money and you get somebody out of purgatory. Kind of like selling somebody a bridge in hell. So things are a little bit different now. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is no holding place. For the Christian, for the believer, you go directly into the presence of the Lord. In this case, at that point in time, because Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross and raised from the dead, at that point in time, there was a holding place called Abraham's bosom. They were in the presence of Abraham and the Old Testament saints, not the presence of the Lord or the presence of God. So things have changed a little bit, but the principle is still the same. And that is, notice that the rich man who represents the unsaved still exists. He was carried 
into hell. He was in hell. He was in torment. He asked Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He's still there. And notice that his soulish faculties are still in place. His emotions are there because he recognizes the torment of hell. So even though he doesn't have his body, his physical body was buried, his emotions are still intact. Notice his mental faculties, intellectual capabilities are still intact. Abraham says, son, remember. Remember things in your lifetime. He remembered his family, remembered his five brothers and sisters. But more importantly, his will is still intact. Notice how his will has changed concerning his brothers. Notice how his will has changed concerning things that are important here on the earth. He's all of a sudden concerned about his brothers that they not come to hell. Well, why wasn't he concerned about that when he was alive? He wasn't concerned about that for himself, much less his brothers. But he sure doesn't want his brothers to come, does he? Doesn't that represent his will? Doesn't that show his will in action? So please notice that even though the body, the man's three parts, he is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. The body is buried. It's in the earth. Notice his spirit and soul are both intact. The eternal part of him and his mind and his will and his emotions are still intact. What does that tell us? That tells us that man is a spirit being and has a body just like your body has a head. Your spirit has a head, meaning the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. You carry it with you. Now, wouldn't it be a tragedy for you to get to heaven, walk into heaven, and have an unrenewed mind or an unsaved soul? I wonder how many Christians are going to fall into that category. Now, what is the difference between the spirit and the soul? Well, we need to understand the difference between the spirit and the understanding. Most everybody's familiar with the scripture over in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Why? Because the spirit of the Lord bears witness with your heart, your spirit, not your mind, not your thinking, not your intellectual capabilities. Christians get an idea and they think that's God. Most of the time, it's just their idea. And a lot of times, Christians will try to use Scripture to justify their idea rather than praying and getting the wisdom of God from a witness in their spirit. Well, good luck with that. I've tried that. That does not work. Your idea can't be passed off as the will of God or the direction of God no matter how much you try to twist Scripture around to make it fit. But if we start with the scripture to begin with, then we're on the right track. Paul said, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we may have looked at this last week, but I want you to see it in this context too. Notice Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, talking about being filled with the spirit and speak with other tongues. He said, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, who's praying? He is. Is he talking about his body? No, he's talking about the real him, the man on the inside, his spirit. He said, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is he talking about his understanding? That would be his intellectual capabilities, wouldn't it? Now, does he mean they're not operative? Does he mean he goes stupid? 
No, his faculties, his intellectual capabilities and his faculties are still operational. They just don't function when you pray in tongues. I was reading the other day about a study that was done within the last couple of months about how they've uh, studied people that uh, speak with other tongues and wire them up, wire their heads up to check their brain activity when they're speaking in other tongues. And they found that the speech center is operative but not the decision-making part of the brain. And they can't come up with any other activity, simulate any other activity that separates those two parts of the brain. Isn't that fascinating? They've got a study that proves out the Bible. Who would have thought? It's exactly what Paul said. My spirit, Amplified says in 1 Corinthians 14, my spirit by the Holy Spirit within me prays. It's me, my spirit that's doing the praying, using my body, using my vocal cords, using my speech capabilities to pray. But it's me on the inside praying with the utterance given by the Holy Ghost. It bypasses my soul altogether, which is one great benefit of praying in tongues. It's a way to learn to trust in the Lord with all your understanding or with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Your head is so used to being in control, it doesn't like taking a back seat. So it's good to train it that way. It's good to let it know it's not in charge. For if I pray, I, the man on the inside, if I pray, remember that's the same thing Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 1 where he said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. I, the man on the inside. We're talking about the same I. Paul always differentiated between himself and his body, or if he didn't, he told us what he was talking about. For example, he said, I keep my body under and bring it under subjection. Well, who does? The man on the inside. In other words, he's saying, I'm doing the same thing I'm encouraging you to do by presenting my body as a living sacrifice. I keep my body under. I've learned to let my spirit influence my decision making and my will i the man on the inside has chosen have chosen to do so i keep my body under lest after i preach to others i myself might be a castaway isn't it interesting that a man as spiritual as paul had to deal with his body most people have the idea, it seems to me at least from my experience in working with people, it seems to me most people think that if they just grow in God enough, just walk with God long enough, you won't ever have any trouble with your body. Well, if that's the case, Paul never arrived. The man that had the revelation that gave us two-thirds of the New Testament never got spiritual enough to never have to deal with his body. You're always going to have to deal with your flesh. You're always going to be influenced by your flesh to make the wrong decisions because remember the fight the conflict is always for the will what will you do it always comes down to the will folks it always does no matter what the situation no matter how severe no matter how long it's been whether it's a a light case or a most extreme case it always comes down to the same thing and that is the operation of the will That's what's so wrong about the sovereignty of God doctrine in the church. That everything that happens is because of the will of God. Folks, that's not the way it works. But if the devil can keep you thinking that, if he can deceive you and keep you thinking that, then he can keep you from renewing your mind to the word to prove the good and acceptable will of God. 
He's got a pretty good racket going, don't you think? He influences you to listen to your flesh and then let's blame it on the sovereignty of God. No, in fact, the Bible says God made you sovereign in your life. He gives you the means whereby to walk in victory and to make the right choices, but you're the one that makes the choice. That's why Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. He didn't say, whosoever God wills, let him come. If Jesus had said, whosoever God will, will come, then everybody would come. Because the Bible says it's the will of God for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So it can't be up to him. He's already done his part. It always comes down to the will of man. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, my spirit prayeth, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding, my intellect, is unfruitful. It's unfruitful. Why? Because the words coming out of your mouth don't go through your mind. That means some words will go through our mind and will make our understanding fruitful, and some words spoken by the Holy Ghost, the utterance of the Holy Ghost, will make our minds unfruitful. What is Paul saying, therefore, in Romans chapter 12? He says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's saying, use the word of God to make your understanding fruitful. How do we do that? Well, he calls it the renewing of the mind. If you look back at the the roots of those Greek words that he uses, it literally means reversal by repetition. Reversal by repetition. The renewing of the mind is the reversal of the mind's normal way of thinking in line with the spirit of the world, which is governed by the enemy, the devil. Reversing that way of thinking by repetition, by saying it to yourself over and over again. You know what's interesting about that is James, uh, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 says that saying the word of God over and over again is the way you meditate in the word and make it a part of your heart. It's almost like Paul knew what Joshua said. It's amazing how these things coincidentally fit together. Of course, there is no coincidence. It's all the instruction of the Holy Ghost. It's been the plan of God and the pattern of God and the principles of God from the very beginning. They can come around with some new doctrine or some new wave of teaching, like some preachers out there say. Well, this is a new doctrine. Well, new if you consider Joshua chapter 1 days new. It's the same instruction God gave Joshua to be successful as the leader of the children of Israel. This word of, the, this word of God, literally he said this book of the law, which means the word of God, it's all they had. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. That means you say it again and again and again or repeat it. Shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Notice repeating the word is called meditating. I know a lot of people get uh, freaked out and uh, get afraid of the word meditation because they envision this Eastern religion stuff where you sit cross-legged and hum. But the whole purpose is I understand it, and I don't know a lot about it, but what little bit I have researched and read up on is Eastern meditation is about emptying your mind. I know a lot of Christians have a head start on that. (laughs) But Eastern religion and meditation is about emptying your mind. Bible meditation is about speaking the Word of God to fill your mind or to renew your mind with the Word of God. It's not emptying anything. It's reversing by repetition. 
It's the way that God told Joshua he'd have good success and prosper in everything that he did. I want that, don't you? Man, I want everything I do to work. I want it to work so well people will say, man, God must be with him. He can't be that smart. God seems to want that same thing. And it all comes through the word. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. You know how to engraft something in? You take a um, branch of one tree and put it on, a, on another tree to try to join them together. You have to first cut off the old branch. Then you have to peel back the bark. Now that's the tough part. Peeling back the bark. I'm talking spiritually. I'm talking about engrafting the word into our hearts. You have to peel back the bark and then bind it together. Stick it in there and tie it up together so that it never can separate on its own. Pretty soon it becomes part of the original tree. That's the picture that James gives us by the Holy Ghost. Receive with meekness. Lay apart the things of the world. Well, the things of the world would include the, the way the world thinks, wouldn't it? Lay aside the world's way of thinking. Lay aside the circumstantial evidence in your life that's designed by the enemy to influence you to control your will. Lay aside those things and receive with meekness. Be teachable. Meekness means to be teachable. Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Receive with meekness the repeated word, which is able to save your souls or renew your minds. Folks, spiritual development is all about the renewing of the mind. But not just to gain knowledge, to be a doer of the word. James goes further in verse 22 to say, but be doers of the word. It's not enough just to say the word to yourself over and over again. You've got to act on it. Because if you just say it and don't act on it, then you're deceiving yourself. You're saying spiritual words, but you're living a natural life. You're overriding it by the action of your will to live contrary to the word that you're speaking. There's a battle going on for your will, folks, every day of your life and always will be. Always will be. Paul said something that I think is interesting. Paul said, I exercise myself to always have a good conscience toward God and men. Always. In other words, he's saying, I've made up my mind on this. I've exercised my will. My will is I'm always going to walk in the Spirit. I'm always going to walk in the Spirit. Paul goes on to tell us right into the Galatians. He said, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, walking by the influence of the Word of God engrafted into your spirit through meditating, that means repeating the Word over and over and over again, will cause you to overcome the influence of your flesh to make wrong decisions and to exercise your will in the wrong way. And it's the only thing that can do it. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He can't just be talking about natural life. He's got to be talking about spiritual life and eternal life. He's saying the key to eternal life is to live by the word. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they're life. They are spirit and they are life. Every time you speak the word of God, you're speaking life. Who are you speaking it to? You're speaking it to your spirit. You're speaking it to your spirit. It's spiritual nourishment to you, the real you, the man on the inside. What effect does it have? Well, the more you say it, the more it will renew your mind. Because your mind is like a computer. 
It'll take whatever you put in it. It'll assimilate whatever information you provided, whether it's good information, whether it's true information, or whether it's a lie. It all comes down to what you listen to. Listen to the word, you're listening to the truth. Listen to the devil, you're listening to the lie. But your mind will take whatever it ta- whatever is put into it, whatever it's exposed to. And that's the way the devil tries to influence you to control your will. But it's up to you. One of the keys to spiritual strength is to recognize I have a choice. It's up to me. I'm not subject to whatever the devil does. He's always going to try to do his thing, but it's still up to me. Even when I stumble and fall, thank God there's no condemnation to me when I do, but it's my choice. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. You realize Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost you can live blameless, you can live sin-free, spirit, soul, and body through receiving the Word of God? That almost seems out of reach, doesn't it? Because we're so used to saying, well, but we're all going to stumble and fall. After all, we're just sinners saved by grace. Folks, that's not true for me. I don't know about you. I was a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. You'll hear people on Christian radio and TV sometimes saying they have to try to discover themselves. All they've got to do is learn to read. Because the Word tells you who you are. But see, that's not good enough for them. They want an experience. They want a feeling. They want a whatever. The Word's not good enough. Well, the Word's good enough for me. How about you? Hallelujah. Say it after me. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm renewing my mind to the Word of God. The Word of God is transforming me. From what I used to be to who God's made me to be. I walk in victory in every area of life through the power of God's word. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege we have to overcome sin, overcome temptation, overcome every work of the enemy in our lives. Thank you, Father, that as the word of God renews our mind to the truth, We are able to determine by experience what is your will for our lives. To know every step that you would have for us to take. To be led into victory by the Holy Ghost in every realm, in every area. Thank you, Father, for the victory we have in Jesus. That we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's all stand together. Hallelujah. I want to encourage you to make the Word of God a priority in your life in these last days. Give attention to the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean read 10 chapters a day. I don't care how much of the Bible you read. I care how much you meditate in. I'd rather have you take one scripture a day and memorize it, or not memorize it, but meditate in it than to read 10 chapters and not get anything out of it. What you put into your heart is what counts. Not what you read. Not what your eyes look at. It's what you put into your heart that counts. Meditate in the Word every day. Take every day. Don't let one day go by without taking a scripture to meditate with you wherever you go. Amen? It'll change your life. 
Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.